We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. Life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. It is one of the most quoted pieces of wisdom from the Danish philosopher Kierkegaard. We all nod along sagely, but can we live the idea? Today I'm going to discuss becoming a wise elder rather than just old. There are lots of positive books and inspirational podcasts about living a long and fulfilling life, but they often skirt around the twin problems of serious health challenges and death. So I'm excited to have a witness today who considers these to be divine messengers. Dr. Connie Zweig is a retired psychotherapist and writer known as the shadow expert. Her new best-selling book, The Inner Work of Age, Shifting from Role to Soul, extends her work on the shadow into midlife and beyond and explores aging as a spiritual practice. It won both the 2021 American Book Fest Award and the 2021 Best Indie Book Award for the Best Inspirational Nonfiction. Connie has been doing contemplative practices for more than 50 years. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. I think we should start at the very beginning by defining what you mean by shadow, because that's really at the very core of this book. So please explain, what is our shadow? Thank you for having me. I'm happy to start there. So Carl Jung coined the term personal shadow to refer to our unconscious the part of us that's outside of our awareness and holds those thoughts, feelings, behaviors that we learned were unacceptable, were taboo, were forbidden in some way. And what happens is that when we're young and we're learning what's appropriate, what results in love and approval, which then builds our ego, Everything else gets repressed and stored into the shadow. And so at that point, what goes into the shadow is protective of us, right? Because if our mother can't tolerate our anger and we're angry all the time, we're going to be punished, criticized, shamed, put down. And so it protects us to learn not to express our anger. But then as we become an adolescent, what happens to the anger? it may start to erupt in certain uncontrollable ways. And then as we go through the lifespan as an adult, what happens to that anger? We don't know how to express it constructively in our relationships. And so what protected us early on later sabotages us. Anything at all can be buried in the shadow. And this is where Jung differed from Freud a hundred years ago in the early days of psychology, where Freud basically thought it was all, quote, negative stuff like sex and aggression. And Jung realized, guess what? If our creative gifts are forbidden in our families, let's say a talent for art or music, then it gets buried into the shadow. 
And so that loss begins to take a toll for us if, in fact, we're not living an authentic life through the lifespan and we really dream about being an artist. And that may begin to erupt, let's say, in midlife, when so many people blow up their lives, right? So many people have a midlife crisis and they leave their careers, they leave their marriages, because material is erupting from the shadow that was outside of awareness and bringing these messages that this is not the life I was meant to live, I need to change everything. So it's really, really important now in later life, I have 73 years of life experience. I am 62, about to become 63. So I think we both qualify as heading into the old category. That's great. So it's important now to recognize that some of this material that was stuffed into the shadow is blocking or sabotaging us from becoming wise elders or aging consciously. So what you're saying is that the stuff that we suppressed when we were young is the very stuff we need to actually get back now to make the transference, as you put it, from role to soul. Well, some of the material, we can't fully make the unconscious conscious. That's too big a job. But we can begin to bring into the light of awareness some of what was buried into the darkness and explore it now with this new longevity. We have the time, we have the resources. There are as many days after retirement as there are in other stages of life now. It's really unprecedented. And so one of the things we can do is begin to explore what was buried in the shadow. So, for example, my literary agent retired last year. She's the person who sold all my books. She had a thriving business, and she's painting full-time. And she said to me, I always dreamed about this, but I never thought it would happen. And I'm so happy every day to just go into my studio. So there are all kinds of stories like that in my new book about people who begin to uncover what was lost in their childhoods and then during the years when they had to have careers and raise families. And you talk about shadow characters. Can you explain about those? Because I think that's a really helpful way of us actually understanding what's going on with this. So because the shadow is outside of our awareness, by definition, it's unconscious. It's like a blind spot. And it's this amorphous general mushy thing that we don't know how to get a hold of, even if we want to do shadow work. And so what I realized, I wrote an earlier book, Romancing the Shadow, about a method for identifying parts of the shadow, figures that are in our unconscious, that we can begin to make a conscious relationship with and thereby expand our awareness of who we are. So let's have some examples. From your book, we have Mr. Needy. I think often one of the best ways of spotting who these characters are is spotting the things that we really hate in other people, because often it's easier to spot the things that we won't own in other people. So if you hate people who are needy or people who are controlling, that might be a bit of a clue. Yes. So in psychology, that's what we call projection. We're attributing, unconsciously attributing to someone else, a quality that's disowned in ourselves. 
And especially when these people are strangers and we have an exaggerated response to them, we can imagine that we're sending an arrow out to them that really needs to be turned back to ourselves to understand what it is that we're projecting. And we can project anything. So if we're afraid of being needy and we weren't permitted to have authentic needs as a child and our dependency was shamed, you know, our mother said, no, get off of me, go out and play. Or our father said, you know, you're five years old, you can walk to school by yourself. So what happens is we're not allowed to have these needs and they carry a certain negative charge about them. And so then as we go through the lifespan, we see neediness in other people and that triggers our own shadow. And so what I would say is there's a shadow character there called the needy one. And the way that we can identify that is identifying three cues. What do we say to ourselves the inner dialogue when we see that neediness in the other person? What are the feelings? And maybe we say to ourselves, oh, God, that's awful. That makes me sick. I can't stand that. And then we have these feelings. Oh, I'm uncomfortable. I don't like her. I, how can she be like that? And then we have bodily sensations. Let's say we feel nauseous or queasy in the solar plexus or the stomach. So those three dimensions, mental, emotional, and physical, make up a figure in the unconscious that I call a shadow character. Let's call it, in this case, let's say the needy one. Now, the reason that the needy one is so important, Andrew, as we age, is because inevitably we're going to face some dependency. And in Western post-industrial culture, this is particularly difficult for men. But it's also hard for women who've been independent. And so if we learn that independent is good and dependent or needy is bad, and we learn that from a very young age, then as we experience dependency, whether we get ill or infirm and need some kind of care, what's going to happen? That shadow figure from childhood is going to come up and bring with it all these terrible, uncomfortable feelings, and we won't have self-acceptance, and we won't be able to be at peace. We'll be resisting and fighting what's going on, and we'll be unhappy about it. So let's look specifically at ageing, because we have to confront a sort of a shadow, ageist sort of picture that we have inside of us, don't we? So tell me about your own experiences, because you met yours face to face. Perhaps you could tell us that experience so we can get a sense of how our sort of internalised ageism might show up. So we live in an ageist culture. We swim in a sea of ageism in Western post-industrial culture. It's not in every culture. It's what's not in indigenous cultures in the same way. But in Western culture today, there is a message from media. Think about the TV shows and movies we watch. I remember growing up watching Archie Bunker and All in the Family treating his wife with contempt. I remember all kinds of images and dialogue from movies I've seen where older people are the butt of jokes. In the pandemic, we had a really clear view of housing segregation by age with all of the nursing homes, 
and public comments that those people's lives didn't mean anything, didn't matter because they were so old. In the workplace, we see age discrimination all the time, you know, including forced retirement or refusal to hire people based on age. And even though we have a law against age discrimination, why hasn't that made any difference? Because this is unconscious bias. It's in the shadow. Just like we've tried to legislate away racism and we've been unable to because it's unconscious bias. So for me, what happened was really shocking for me. In my late 60s, I went into a restaurant and a woman came in and sat down. She was probably in her 80s and she was quite disheveled and disorganized. Her hands were dirty. She ordered free samples of food. And because I've been doing shadow work for so long, I noticed what I was saying to myself. I was saying, oh, God, she's so old. She doesn't belong here. And she (laughs) looks like she's poor and she can't afford it. And, you know, what's going on here? And then I became alarmed at my own attitude. And that sent me on a whole journey to explore internalized ageism. This was before I was writing The Inner Work of Age. And what I discovered was the research of Becca Levy at Yale University, who has spent her whole career exploring the mind-body health effects of internalized ageism. And it turns out that when we take in these stereotypes about old age through the lifespan, when we're little, when we're adolescent, when we're adults, when we're accepting these ageist beliefs and attitudes, they have a dramatic impact on us. They affect our cardiac health, our memory, our longevity, all kinds of health parameters and well-being parameters, our will to live, our relationship to retirement. And so I was alarmed because I was in Berkeley in the late 60s and I fought against all the isms, right? I fought against racism and sexism and homophobia. And here I was with this internalized ageism. And I was in my 60s. I was one of those old people already. So I named that shadow character the inner ageist. And what I found is that there's an epidemic of the inner ageist. Some research by an insurance company, a global insurance company, found that many, many women, millions of women, have an internal image of a bag lady that carries their fear of being older and poor and homeless and alone. So I realized that the inner ageist was not only in me, it's archetypal, it's universal in our culture. And men have their own version of that too. So that led me on this path to write the book because I realized that this was a shadow character that I could contribute to, that I could teach people about. And the ramifications of that might be many, many readers working on their internalized ageism and then working on social ageism in the culture as elders and improving their own health and well-being in later life. Do you think it's actually worth us all having a picture of who our inner ageist is so that we are, can bring them sort of out of the shadow more into the consciousness? Yes. You know, the way that I work with the shadow character is the inner dialogue, 
and then the feelings that come up, and then the bodily sensations that come up. And then we form those three dimensions into an image, and we give it a name. So we mentioned the needy one. We mentioned the inner ageist. You can give it any name that fits for you, the bag lady. And then what does that mean? It's in your awareness. It's no longer unconscious. Since reading your book, I remember a scene from when I was in my 20s in a a gay bar, and there was somebody there, an older man who probably was only in his 50s, but, you know, I thought he was incredibly old, and he was wearing a sweater, the sort of sweater that, you know, somebody would wear on a folk revival programme on the TV, which was, I'm sure, a very nice jumper, but was entirely inappropriate. He looked like he didn't belong there, and he was sort of standing in the corner. And somehow this man has stuck in my memory, and, you know, this is my fear that I'm going to be wearing the wrong clothes, being the wrong person, alienated at the end there. So I've started to call this internal fear of mine, Sweater Man. Great. So what do I do now with Sweater Man? Okay, so you're beginning to do shadow work. So I would just suggest is when you have that image, and you can practice this at home, when you have that image of this man who you said was dressed inappropriately, not fitting in, looking kind of out of it, and the sweater is kind of a symbol of that, And it was the way the rest of the bar was responding to him as well. It wasn't just him. It was what actually was put on to him by everybody else in the bar. The way they were alienating him, making him into the other that was so profoundly upsetting. Yes, othering him so that he was in a way shunned or excluded. Your sense of belonging is in there as well. So what I want to suggest is that you take some time to do some kind of slowing, self-reflective centering process. Close your eyes, take a few breaths, and then picture sweater man. And what words are you saying to yourself? And what feelings come up with that image and those words? And what happens to your body? And then you can use any of those three dimensions as a cue, because the image may not come up all the time. But you can use any of those. Those three dimensions are actually repeating. They will be the same every single time Sweater Man is emerging from your unconscious. That's what was really a breakthrough for me when I discovered that in the 90s. The shadow figure has the same inner dialogue feelings and sensations in your body every time it shows up. So you now have these cues, including the image. It's four cues that it's up. And that gives you choice. How do you respond differently now that you're aware that this is a figure in your unconscious? You saw him outside of yourself in a bar, but he's triggered all these thoughts and feelings in you that were unconscious. What do they carry? What do they say to you? And what do you want to do about them? Well, they say, go home. You don't belong here. And... Obviously, I really don't want to listen to that message, but I'm not quite certain how I combat it. Okay. So what I would suggest is, in the context of aging, there are a few things here. One is that as we age, our image changes. And people who are very attached to how they look and deeply identify with their appearance are really going to struggle 
with those changes. So part of the inner work of age is releasing an attachment or an identification with image. And whether that means wrinkles or clothes or body shape or gait or whatever it is, if we say that's who I am, the way that I looked at 40 is who I am and anything else is downhill, then we're going to be in trouble. And so part of this shadow image for you is a message about beginning to let go of your attachment to image. Another part of it is, we said, belonging and isolation and feeling othered. And so you want to contemplate, take some time to think about, if that's a big fear for you, what can you do about that? How can you build more community? How can you make more connection with family, friends, in your community? So that as you age, you don't feel so alone as he looked. He looked like he was really alone. We don't know if he had, he could have had a big family and not been alone at all. In the context of the bar, he looked isolated. Looking at his sweater, he probably had a wife and children back home, to be perfectly honest. Okay, but he's in a gay bar, so he may not be living an authentic life. We don't Mm -hmm. know. We're making up a story about him. But the point is what it meant for you you know, because it stayed with you and you internalize it, you recognize that it's an inner figure, like what happened with me with the woman in the restaurant. And that led me on an entire journey to understand the history of ageism and how it's so rooted in our culture and why it got rooted in me and my own psychology and my family of origin. So you can take this moment, if you want to, and explore Where did this figure come from in you? Trace its history. You know, what is the first time that you felt inappropriately dressed and therefore othered? And what about you? What did you discover about the bag lady that connected to your family? Well, I discovered the ageist messaging in my family, which I'd never really thought about before, especially my dad. I had no positive model of an elder growing up. No grandparent who was, you know, a thriving elder that could show me, look, this is what it looks like. And that's a really important antidote to the general ageism with which we live, right? That's a way that people can internalize a positive image. I didn't have that. And I hadn't realized that before. And when my dad retired, he was actually forced into retirement in his 50s. He did nothing with his life. He was brilliant. And so he modeled for me a kind of uselessness that gave me a lot of fear of retirement until I worked it out. So I began to see all kinds of connections to my own inner world just from that one event. And it sounds like for you, this is potentially really rich. So I'm going to quote you, because I think it's really beautiful, and then perhaps you can expand for me. No one models for us how to retire, become a grandparent, recover from illness, or lose a loved one as a sacred passage into a new awareness. And that seems, the final part of it seems the key to this. We need to have a sacred passage into a new awareness. Tell me about that. Yes. You know, we don't have a rite of passage to become an elder in our culture. We have some rites of passage in early life, but after midlife, we don't have anything that teaches us the three steps of 
letting go, stepping into the unknown, and emerging renewed as an elder. And so retirement is kind of an archetypal moment for that because our roles and responsibilities fall away. The structure of our day falls away. We lose our work relationships. And many people can't let go for a long time or can't step into the unknown, step two, because it's just too scary for them. Why is this? I believe it's because we're identified with what we do. Our roles are who we are. So I am a CEO, right? I am a doctor. I am a therapist. I am a writer. I am a mom. I am a secretary. I am a salesperson. We're identified with what we do. And when that is lost, for whatever reason, we have what I call a late life identity crisis. We begin to ask again, who am I? You know, if I'm not a therapist or a writer, who am I? And you have to answer the question that I ask, what makes your life meaningful? Yes. What is meaningful to you now? But in order to ask that question, we need to let go first of the past roles. And I don't mean only let go of the doing, but let go of identifying with the doing as our meaning, as our identity. So I've retired several years ago as a psychotherapist. If I were getting all of my meaning from that, I would have had a really, really difficult time, which, you know, some people do with retirement. I know many, many people who just are not heeding the call to retire because they don't know what will be meaningful to them. And so if we miss those first two steps of the rite of passage, we can't cross the threshold to the other side and really open the door to what's waiting for us on the other side as an elder. So the book is built as a rite of passage. From the beginning to the end, you walk through the different themes of aging, and each chapter has a set of practices. So you can deepen your own experience. It's not just intellectual. You can experience these shifts in awareness. And so this shift from what we do to who we are is a profound rite of passage. We could call it sacred or spiritual rite of passage. So one of the things of finding out who you are and what makes your life meaningful is doing a life review. So explain how we would do that. Perhaps you could use your own life as an example for the life review. So there are many, many practices in the book. And one of the primary ones that I found really gratifying is called a life review. There are two parts of it. So there's the traditional life review, which has been around for a while in the world of aging and gerontology. I call it the ego's life review. What you do is you get a large piece of paper, you draw a horizontal line across it, you draw vertical lines for every decade of your life, and then you begin to write above the horizontal line your key moments, experiences, transitions, people, insights, losses, traumas. You begin to fill in the story of your lived life above the line, which is the conscious life that you've lived. For some people, memories return. For some people, you can see patterns that you hadn't seen before. 
one of the things I saw for myself in this part of the process was how many mentors showed up, just appeared throughout my life, and what a gift that was for me. What I thought was interesting about your life is you went for spirituality first, and then you went for career and family, whereas most people do it the opposite way around. That's right. So there were a lot of baby boomers who learned to meditate in the 60s and 70s. I was one of them. And there are a lot of consequences to that developmentally. You know, during the years where my life was really centered on meditation, I didn't bother to build intimate relationships or build career skills because spiritual awakening was really all I cared about. Then I returned later to building my career and to meeting a man who had kids because I didn't have my own children. So that's a common story actually among baby boomers who were attracted to Eastern philosophy and meditation practices in the 60s and 70s. But it's not a common story in general. And in most of the traditions and most of the religious traditions in the world, it's taught that later life is the time for meditation practice. You know, later life, when we've let go of all of our responsibilities and we're contemplating death, that's the time really to pick up practices. So yes, my trajectory was a bit unusual. And so you say you need to witness your story from on high rather than get lost with identification with it. So explain that. Okay. So there's another dimension to the life review that I've added to it, and that's the shadow, the unlived life in the shadow, which is a term that Jung coined, the unlived life. And so what we do is, with each notation above the line in the lived life, you ask yourself, for that to be expressed, what was repressed? And you put that below the line. So... For me, I was very academic and loved learning. And so for that to be expressed, what was repressed? We might say a lot of feeling and emotional development was more repressed. Wasn't that safe in my family to express feelings, especially difficult feelings? So you begin to build the map of your unlived life below the line by connecting the two, by connecting conscious awareness and the unconscious. And then you begin to see the connection between what was lived and what was unlived. And as that unfolds, as I said earlier, you have this opportunity to begin to express now some of what was buried in the shadow. A friend of mine just said this week, He's 73, he's wanted to write a novel forever and ever, and he's finally slowing down enough to write this novel, and he's deeply engaged in it. And he said to me, now I won't die with regret. This is the one thing I had to do so that I wouldn't die with regret. So you can begin to see what was sacrificed into the shadow and unlived and begin to pick it up now. Okay, so for your point... Once we have the conscious life and the unconscious life, and we have that map of our story, if we want to become a spiritual elder, which is a dimension of elder that's not appealing to everybody, but if you do a spiritual practice and you like that idea, then you want to begin to step back from the story. 
Because just like the role is not who you are, the story is not who you are. It's not your spiritual essence. But you can only really step back for it once you've metabolized it, really digested it, harvested your lessons from your life, you know, got the meaning of your particular one-of-a-kind story. And then you can recognize, okay, it's a beautiful story and it's not who I am essentially. Spiritually, it's not who I am. So that's another level of rite of passage where we let go of the story, step into the unknown, and emerge into a deeper spiritual identity. What if when you look back at the life, you find all sorts of things that you really regret, the things you need to repair? Or, you know, for example, you didn't have the children that suddenly you rather wish that you did have. And whereas you can write a book when you're 73, you can't suddenly have children at 73. Yeah, that's actually not accurate for me. I'm at peace with no kids. It was a good choice for me. But it may not be for many women. Or men. That's right. So what people find is that when they finish this life review, they have clarity on what needs to be repaired in their lives. They have more clarity about where they may need to give forgiveness or receive forgiveness, what they might need to say to loved ones or repair or express gratitude. I have a friend who just sent a message to his analyst, who's 95. He hadn't seen the analyst for many, many years, but because he's 95, he decided he wanted to express his gratitude to this man before the analyst died. So there's all kinds of life repair moments that might become more evident from the life review. Regret is a difficult one. There are ways to process regret. A lot of people need help to be able to do that. Painful memories are also difficult. Some people might need therapy or support to be able to do that. So there are moments in your life story that you can see more clearly that need your attention now. And that's one of the benefits of this tool. Another one is that part of becoming an elder is mortality awareness. If we're in denial of death, we can't really be an elder because we're not conscious that the time horizon has shortened, that there's an urgency now to complete all this unfinished emotional business, that there's an urgency now to live out our creative expression or contribute to the common good, whatever the calling is for each person. And so that mortality awareness leads us to the question, what do I need to do now or say now so that I don't die with regret? And that's really important for people to contemplate. Can you explain what you mean by serious illness as a divine messenger? Well, you know, there's a legend about Siddhartha who became the Buddha, that as a young man, he left his father's palace. He was a prince. He left his father's palace after being very sheltered and never seeing any suffering, he went out on the street without his father's permission. And he saw three things. He saw illness, old age, and death. 
And in the Buddhist tradition, those are called divine messengers because for him, they woke him up to the transitoriness, the fleeting quality of life. And then he also saw a monk who symbolized for him another possibility, you know, a life beyond suffering. And so that teaching in Buddhism, and I am not a Buddhist practitioner, but I tell that story in the book, because the framework of divine messengers, I believe, can be applied to all of these key moments that happen to us after midlife. Illness is a divine messenger in the sense that it calls us to wake up to what really matters. What is our priority now? It calls some people to wake up to letting go of identification with the body and doing meditation practices. It calls some people to do spiritual repair work, aligning their spiritual or religious beliefs with who they really are now, rather than carrying their old childhood programming with them. And it wakes up some people to start a practice, really start a serious spiritual practice, whatever that is. It might be prayer or mindfulness, whatever it is. And retirement can also serve as a divine messenger because, as I said before, our world dissolves. Everything that we've known falls away. And so there's a call to go through the rite of passage, right, and to emerge different on the other side, to emerge with a new beginning. So what have you learned from the divine messengers? My husband has a serious illness, and it has radically changed the way we orient to life. It has helped us to reprioritize in many appropriate ways, and it has called me into caregiving at a level that I never anticipated, where I really have to be patient, I really have to learn to put him first, and because I wasn't a mother, I didn't have to learn those things earlier. And so, you know, there are many forms of the divine messenger that show up in all of our lives. I would say the call to write the book was also that kind of turning for me because I had not intended to write another book. And once I really saw that there was no literature like this about the unconscious shadows of age and how to break free of them, and how to live more consciously and more fully in this time of life, I knew I had to do it. And it kind of downloaded itself. I didn't write this book in the same way that I wrote other books from my mind. It really just flowed in. And there's a kind of fulfillment that I'm in now, a kind of state of fulfillment as an elder. That's a big surprise to me. It's a big surprise. In what way a surprise? You know, we only live the age we are, right? So when we're 20, we don't imagine being 40, except maybe with some fantasies and projections. When we're 40, we don't know what it's like to be 70. So in some ways, these are the best years of my life. And part of it is because with technology, I've been able to talk with thousands of my readers and hear how this work is affecting them. And I've been able to form wisdom circles 
of people who are reading the book together and aging in community now, forming deep friendships, doing the practices together that are in the book. There are about 30 of these groups now. And I invite our listeners, if you would like to do that, to email me, ConnieZweig at gmail.com, and just put Wisdom Circle in the subject line so that I know, you know, and don't send me a long story, please. But just, you know, if you want to be in a Wisdom Circle, I will connect you with other folks. And that's been incredibly gratifying for me, Andrew. We'll put Connie's email address in the show notes. So don't worry if you didn't manage to get that written down. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. One of the new things we're doing on The Meaningful Life is we're inviting everybody to write in here as well if you have a dilemma and you would like me to talk to one of my guests about. And this is one I've chosen to share with Connie. I'm male and I will turn 60 this year. I quit my job of 41 years 12 months ago. Last week, I brought my mother to a nursing home where she will see out her remaining days. I'm four and a half years on from discovery of my wife's affair, then discovery of her rekindle affair five months later. Three years of couples therapy spread across three different therapists, plus a full year of individual therapy for myself followed that. Discovering my wife's affair was the most shocking experience of my life. Time, therapy, books, podcasts all helped enormously. I'm a different person now than I was five years ago, as a result of that unexpected series of events. In short, I'm at a point in life where I'd like to go on a bit of a journey of discovery. Inspired by your books and the Meaningful Life podcast, I'd like to leverage on the inner work, if you like, that a fair recovery started and that my age and life events have thrown up. I don't have a specific issue like a fair recovery or work-related stress that I can present with just a curiosity about untangling stuff that I may not even realise is untangled, if that makes sense. Looking up websites is not helpful. I can't find any description that points to the therapist in question being one who might fit the bill. When I start looking at therapists, they all list very specific things they can help with, anxiety, depression and so on. Also confusing are terms used psychologist, psychotherapist, therapist, counsellor, psychoanalytic, counselling, Mind-boggling list of accreditations. Wow, I think finding a match on Tinder would be easier. What should I look for in terms of their bio, their accreditations, their approach? From my perspective, it's bewildering and a steer would be appreciated. Well, thank you very much for your letter and uh, congratulations on trying to untangle your life. I hope that uh, our conversation today has given you some thoughts about untangling. So, Connie, any thoughts reading this letter? You know, this man is describing just what we were talking about, Andrew. Three transitions at the same time, right? His work, his mother, and his marriage. And there's a lot of loss there and a lot of letting go. And it sounds like he was very committed to working it through, did a lot of therapy. And then he said, and I'm a different person now which tells me that he crossed that threshold 
and emerged changed. He allowed all this change to change him. So now the question becomes, what I'm hearing is, what's next so that I can live a meaningful life? And if I were listening to that person as a therapist, I would begin to suggest spirituality. I don't know what that means for him. I don't know if he's already in some kind of organized religion or unaffiliated spiritual lineage or community. My sense is that he's done a lot of psychological work, and there's certainly no problem with doing more of that. He may be interested in working with the unconscious, in which case I would suggest a Jungian analyst, and he may be able to find one in the city where he lives. There are many young institutes and young societies that you can look up, and they all list the local therapists. And I'm suggesting that because most of the therapy, it sounds like he did, was more relational about the affair and the decision about the marriage. And that's not so much intrapsychic or about his own psyche and his own shadow. So if that interests him, he could go in that direction. If spirituality interests him, he could go in that direction. And there is a connection there because in some ways, Jungian psychology has a spiritual foundation to it. Because I would say most psychologists and therapists are profoundly uncomfortable with talking about spiritual matters. Yeah. I'm in analysis at the moment, and I would say my analyst sort of, you know, is prepared to go down there, but I think he's a little bit uncomfortable when we head towards spiritual material. It'd be much, it's much happier unhooking all the psychological parts of my unconscious. I mean, there's more than enough to be going on with there anyway, but just knowing a lot of therapists, generally, they're not particularly comfortable talking about spiritual stuff because, to be honest, it certainly wasn't part of my training. It might have been part of your training. You know, tragically, from my point of view, the field has been medicalized. Yes. And the AMA and the APA are all about diagnosis and brain, brain and behavior. And so cognitive behavioral therapy now is called brief therapy. And the reason it's brief is because the insurance companies don't want to pay for longer. So the field is really, it's been taken over. And that's why I'm suggesting the work of Carl Jung. There are still people training to become Jungian analysts who have a very different orientation. It's about soul. It's about the life of the soul. It's about symbolic meaning. It's about working with your dreams. It's about working with your creativity. It's just a very different universe from medical psychology. So let's take some of these terms. What's the difference between a psychologist and a psychotherapist? Well, a psychologist has a PhD and is licensed through the state. Many people use the term psychotherapist who aren't supposed to use it legally. So it can refer to people with other kinds of licenses, like marriage and family therapist is a different license by state, and some of them call themselves psychotherapists. Counselor is a more generic term. Those folks may or may not have a license. There are ministerial or pastoral counselors. So it's a little bit muddy. It's not very clear. All that's clear is who's licensed by what. 
My advice would be to actually look at the life stage of the therapist. And here is something that I think is incredibly true and is really important to say. And I'm talking as a therapist now myself. You can't take anybody anywhere you haven't actually been yourself. So, you know, it's very difficult if you're 40 to help somebody prepare for retirement. I think that's very perceptive, but I wouldn't generalize because I do think there are individuals who have enough emotional and cognitive development that they can help people in earlier stages of life or later stages of life. But it's good to have a fit with stage of life, I think. So, for example, I know a psychologist who's 40 and her whole practice is people in their 80s on Medicare. They Mm -hmm. love her. So they're not getting what they would get from someone my age, but they're getting something else. They're getting youthful energy and connection. So I think it's hard to generalize, but what I agree with is ask yourself if that's important to you. It's funny that you should say that because this morning I had the thought that all of my doctors are young. My internist is, God, she's, I don't know, she's probably 40. And she refers me to young doctors. And I thought to myself, geez, I have to find a gerontologist. I don't have a single doctor in my age group. So it depends on what you're looking for and not just the skill level of the therapist, but the developmental level of the therapist. What do you mean by the developmental level of the therapist? Well, a therapist could be 45 or 55 and be very intellectually developed, emotionally developed, relationally developed, well-read in later stages of life. Now, they haven't experienced it. You're right about that. They haven't experienced retirement or serious illness, probably. But they could have enough awareness that they can support people through those transitions. But if you've never actually thought about the whole spiritual questions, you know, what happens to us after we die, what's the meaning of life, you haven't really wrestled with those yourself, how can you help somebody else do it? It's almost like shouting from a helicopter rather than being on the clip face. But I was asking those questions in my 20s. So that's why I'm saying that it isn't good to generalize because I think what's important in terms of what you're saying is that there's a resonance and an affinity. And that if you go to a therapist where you don't feel that, leave. It's your right not to stay with that person. You're not obligated to. And you want to build a deep relationship with the therapist, you want to feel that affinity, that kinship. I think that's what's really important. How many sessions do you think it takes to work that out? Is it like dating and you sort of feel it within the first 10 minutes or do you need sort of three or four sessions? What do you think? Again, I think these generalizations are tricky. It's different for different people. Some people are very intuitive and they'll know right off. I mean, I have a friend in her 70s who was looking for a therapist recently and She went to five different people. She went to one session with five different people, and then she found somebody she felt comfortable with. It's just different for everyone. Well, thank you very much for sharing your wisdom as an elder with us today. I have to ask you now what makes your life meaningful? Well, 
I've been doing my meditation practice for more than 50 years now, since I was 19. And that's kind of been the foundation for meaning for me and the spiritual stages of development that I've undergone from doing meditation practices and all different kinds of practices. So that's really, for me, the evolution of the soul is the purpose of life. And we didn't talk about the shift from role to soul, but that's the subtitle of the book. And that is a term I borrowed from Ramdas. And the reason I use that term is because that's what this stage of life is about for me. It's about spiritual development. I have now met, I would say, 10 or 12 people who are in very advanced stages of spiritual development. And that's been so meaningful to me that I can have close relationships with people and it's no longer abstract and remote, this dream that I've had all my life. My beautiful, intimate relationship with my husband is deeply meaningful to me. And I now have grandkids who are the future. And, you know, for people who read the book, I wrote a letter to the grandchildren at the end of the book because everything we're doing now is for them. So, unfortunately, this is where we're going to have to leave the conversation for most people. But if you become a supporter of The Meaningful Life, the details will be coming up in a second through Patreon. You'll be able to hear the rest of the conversation. Or if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you'll find you can actually, through Apple, subscribe to the service and hear the rest of the conversation where I will talk more about role to soul. And I'm going to go through some questions that might help you with that life review. So if you'd like to find out more about about how to hear the rest of the conversation, here comes the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.